Hello there, and welcome to SITREP. SITREP, your weekly defence and global affairs magazine from BFBS Radio. I'm Christopher Lee. In the next 60 minutes, Afghanistan. Don't send more troops, says the man in Kabul. That's what the US ambassador said, and he's telling President Obama that. But is this a big con? And how much of Afghanistan does Taliban really control? That's the key to future UK and US, US strategy. Or have the MOD bonus spending officials have other ideas, or any at all for that matter? And does what Mr Brown, the Prime Minister, think really matter? Iraq, the stench of oil and the whiff of fudge. Berlin, after the Lord Mayor's show, and why Opal is the real headline. And the Eastern Sabre Rattle, who's likely to cut themselves? Why the Chinese know how to run a railway. Cyprus, the British timeshare that's run into the sand. And why all cities have walls and were East Berliners nicer people than West Berliners. With me in the studio from the University of Salford Centre for Defence and Security Studies, studies and Studies probably, Professor Eric Grove from City University here in London, Dr Rosemary Hollis and John Dickey, the former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail. We'd better start with the ambassador, the ex-general, um, America's ambassador to Kabul, John. He's told, um, he's told President Obama, now listen, don't send any more troops until... Uh, this Karzai guy stopped screwing around. Just... Uh, or not, diplomatically. Not, uh, not, not a leak. More. I'm surprised it took a whole week this time to come out. But uh, Carl Eikenberry clearly um, has been inspired to uh, drop this little bombshell. The inspiration, perhaps, Joe Biden, uh, the, the vice, vice president, president, who is known to be against... Uh, the great surge of extra troops, extra, up to 40,000 troops into Afghanistan in the near future. And as the president is still, after eight special meetings on the problem, uh, undecided. Another one yesterday. One yesterday, number eight was yesterday. So uh, Karl Eichenberger thinks it's... Um, not the best of ideas to go into on. He talks again about the, the need to clean up the corruption and doesn't think that troops can go in there while there's a government that lacks credibility and respect. A very understandable position. Even the British Prime Minister said that the government in Kabul was a byword for corruption. So it'll be an interesting factor in the general whirlpool of ideas going round in the White House. Rosie, uh, I bet this gets right up the frock of uh, General McChrystal, doesn't it? I mean, he, who told... President, we need 40,000 extra troops, and if we don't have them, we've got a problem. And there is the ambassador, former commander there, saying, I wouldn't send any, not until Karzai sorts himself. No, and I think, but there's, a, there's another sort of concern. It's often said that it really doesn't matter what Brown decides vis-a-vis -vis British troops in Afghanistan. It's all up to Obama. But it does reflect on the morale of the troops, the sense that they uh, have a prospect of achieving some lasting success and this this political bickering is is no good for what they're trying to do uh, irrespective of whether the troop numbers go up or not mm. uh, Eric um, I mean what uh, Rose is saying there is in fact that um, Mr Brown Prime Minister what he thinks in terms of strategy if there is a strategy doesn't actually matter at all well it's often forgotten that this is a coalition operation it's a, it's a combined operation it's a NATO operation and there are lots of others there and the Americans are quite clearly the major contributor it's, it would seem to me that we have a choice actually um, from what I've been getting from senior army officers here they think that or some of them do anyway that 
We need to send more forces as an alliance, not just the Brits. We need to send more forces so we can occupy more territory. The problem in the past has been we've occupied it, then we've evacuated. And, of course, the people there swing between one side and the, uh, and the other. Unless more territory can be occupied to give Afghans a sense of security, there's no way that we're going to win in any, any sense at all. Having a government like we've got, of course, doesn't help. But on the other hand, you know, the, the, unless we're willing to reinforce, then I think we ought to start thinking about exit strategies quickly. Rosie? I happened to coincide at a conference in Beirut with uh, one of the civilians who's working in Afghanistan at the moment and in the education sector. So this is just anecdotal, but uh, I was asking, OK, with the Afghans that you deal with, the non-military yeah. um, and the non-leadership Afghans, uh, he was telling me that... There is this considerable worry that the... I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted by all the squeaks and buzzes. Right, we've got uh, fewer now. Uh, right. The, the, the considerable worry on the Afghan side is that they might be abandoned. And the point I was trying to make earlier, coalition or no coalition, it, it's about whatever was achieved so far, if trust the Afghan people in the preparedness of the Allies to stay the course disappears, then they won't even have achieved what they've done so far. Mm -hmm. Exactly. What worries me is that uh, Carl Eikenberry's leak is, is just a gift to the Taliban. The Taliban have stepped up their communications offensive with their own uh, DVDs, their own TV uh, programs, even though they disapprove of, uh, of TV as such. But they're, they're making hay at the moment by saying, look how uh, absolutely at sixes and sevens uh, the Allies are. I tell you, from last night when I first heard this, mm -hmm. 11 different uh, websites... Mm -hmm all in support, one way or another, of Taliban, or all sort of thing. Why are they bothering to stay at all if they can't make up their minds? Listen, um, there's that's, another that's side That's especially of interesting, given the fact the Taliban aren't, aren't supposed to believe in modern communications, but never mind, needs must when the devil drives, I suppose. Yes, well, the devil's driving a very good war, as far as terrorism is concerned at the moment. Now, listen, there's something interesting, particularly interests me on terrorism, and that is this. Um, Taliban have got quite a lot of command of... Uh, of uh, Afghanistan, John. I think there are 34 provinces <laughs> in Afghanistan. Taliban have set up sort of shadow governors, shadow, shadow governors uh, in I about 26 or 27 I don't of them. know if they operate so effectively in daylight, but the shadow governors have a great influence once darkness comes around and they can influence the villagers. They uh, you know, have a great uh, leaflet dis distribution system that goes into all the villages and uh, it's paying off dividends. Yeah. That's why it's necessary to get forces on the ground on a more permanent basis. Unless that can happen, these shadow governors will, as we've heard, rule the night. And if they rule the night, they will rule indirectly in the day as well. So therefore, extra reinforcement is, I think, required if you're going to have to make any fist of this at all. OK. On the line from the United States, the security correspondent of the Wall Street Journal, Peter Spiegel. Peter, um... The ambassador's um, note to uh, the White House saying don't send any troops until we've sorted out arrangements with President Karzai. Uh, the cynical characters around this table, goodness gracious me, cynical characters around this table say they can, they can see the hand of Joe Biden in this. What, what would you reckon on that? I'm not sure that's exactly right. I mean, Eikenberry has a long history in Afghanistan, as you discussed. He was a former commander there. Even before that, he was uh, an officer who headed the training of Afghan troops there in, in sort of the 2003-2004 time frame. 
he has a long history in Afghanistan, and he's had, he has a long history with Karzai. The two of them do not get along. Um, Karzai, people I talked to who worked with Eikenberry back when he was a military commander, say there was a very tense relationship between the two men. The two of them have never gotten along. And if you uh, remember back to the whole debate over whether it would be a runoff election between mm-hmm. Karzai and Abdullah Abdullah, they had to pull in Senator John Kerry to be the middleman because Eikenberry's relationship with Karzai had been so poisoned. So I think he has his own agenda here. I think he actually... Uh, doesn't believe the Karzai government is willing and able to, to fight the corruption and be the kind of central government where you can attach an Afghan national security force if you were to, to ramp it up, and that the U.S. needs as a, as a partner to fight a counterinsurgency. Right. Um, the president clearly isn't dithering. He's talking to too many people. It's taking a long time. There are certain things in the next few days, a couple of weeks, are going to get in the way of any announcement, I suppose. After all, he's, when, when is he going, he's going on his Asian tour to China, etc. He's hardly likely to announce it then, is he? Then we've got Thanksgiving. So when are we going to get an announcement, do you think, from the White House? Well, I, as a reporter who's been covering this now for three months, I hope soon. <laughs> um, but uh, you're exactly right in terms of the timing. He actually departed about a half hour ago for Asia, for this trip to, to Asia. It was last more than a week. Uh, the Thanksgiving holiday week starts the 23rd. We, we were originally given guidance that maybe it would be early that week because Thanksgiving doesn't happen until the Thursday. But now we're getting further indications that it could be until early December. Um, there is, you know, I, the, the word dithering has come up from a lot of the, the Republican critics of the Obama administration. But you also hear a lot of teeth gnashing and, and hand-wringing at the Pentagon over what's taking so long, and for the very reason some of your folks there uh, are, are suggesting. The longer the U.S. is seen to be debating its way forward, the more you risk turning the Afghans off. You know, the fence-sitters who are weighing whether to side with the, with the coalition and the, the Afghan central government or to side with the Taliban are looking at, or, and, and Pentagon officials fear this, are looking at this de- debate and saying, well, gosh, if the Americans aren't sure whether they're going to stay and back the Karzai government, isn't it more wise for I to to back the Taliban or at least be more conducive to Taliban influence? Because those are the guys who are going to be sticking around here uh, when the Americans are gone. I mean, my history book would tell me that the last time we had such a big strategic thinking time was probably, you have to go back to 61 and um, um, President Kennedy thinking about Vietnam. Well, you know, it's interesting. Secretary Gates, who uh, has obviously served both in the Bush and the Obama administration, has made the argument that the deliberations over whether to proceed with the surge in Iraq lasted two or three months. They were much quieter and behind closed doors, and we didn't see the constant leaks that we're seeing now with the Obama administration. But his argument is, look, we've been through this before. When we decide to make a major policy decision on a war, it's it's all well and good to to take the three months that you need to do it. that said, I know in lower levels in the Pentagon, there is a lot of hand-wringing over this and, and whether it is actually taking too long. Do you think, Peter, that, um, that when there's a NATO meeting, I think in about 10 days' time of uh, NATO officials and ministers, um, they're going to be asked how many troops they're going to be putting up towards this 40,000 that was originally requested. The, the signs aren't good at the moment. That's not going to help him, is it? No, it's not. I mean, part of the thing that is now going to be taking a couple more weeks, as they say, is consultations with the allies, and that NATO meeting is one of them. But one of the one of the the the, the options the president looked at yesterday was a sort of a, a compromise option that where the U.S. would send about thirty to thirty-five thousand additional troops, and as you said, rely on NATO to provide another five thousand. Now, there's a lot of skepticism 
uh, when the UK is only willing to put up 500 at this point, and no other ally seems to be willing to to fill that that breach, whether there is an ability to convince NATO countries to to send additional troops, there is a belief that with the with the you know change in administrations that President Obama with a with a much better public perception in Europe may be a better salesman on this than President Bush was, but you know the Dutch, the Canadians, I mean allies that have sent substantial number of troops to the most dangerous parts of Afghanistan are all talking about withdrawing as opposed to adding more troops. There's another point which you would perfectly understand, um, Peter. I wonder if President uh, Obama can convince the American public that one of the problems is that the European members of NATO actually don't have all these troops. They certainly don't have the troops that they could uh, well train to do these sort of jobs. They don't have the, the wherewithal to get them there. And the best thing they can actually do is to get their checkbooks out rather than their troops. Well, it'd be interesting to see how he approached it, because, because at the tail end of the Bush administration, Secretary Gates clearly made the decision that haranguing the Europeans for more troops was not a productive enterprise, that not only were you squeezing a, a stone in terms of trying to get uh, more troops, but you're also angering governments, particularly the Germans, uh, who felt really uh, abused by constant American hectoring on this one. So frankly, the, the Bush administration in the last year or so backed off and made that very point that you're making, which is, all right, you can't help us with troops. Can you help us with trainers, with money, with stuff that is outside the country, perhaps move Afghan troops to training bases in Europe and that kind of thing. Um, now, the question is, does the Obama administration pick up that cudgel again and start haranguing the Europeans, even behind closed doors, please send more? And whether that is going to be successful, I personally doubt, but it will be interesting to see whether they decide to go in that direction. And there he is, the man in the White House waiting. See, we've got to do something for Spiegel. He's getting fed up with waiting. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Peter, thank you very much indeed. Can we talk about Iraq now? Um, uh, Can I pick up something he said about sure, the surge sure. in Iraq? Yes. Because he suggested that that was incubated over three months and relatively off the radar. Uh, what, what off I the recollect, Washington radar. Yes. Mm. What I recollect is that they had the Iraq study group. And you had a bipartisan inquiry as to what to do with the question of Iraq. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was Lee Hamilton, I think, and uh, certainly James Baker. And the, the idea was that they were, in a sense, going to rescue young Bush from his own mistakes. And the father's man, as in uh, mm, James, Baker, James Baker, was, was the one who was going to was James fix Baker, it. Was uh, old President Bush's Secretary of State? Exactly. Yes. Mm. Um, and sorry, old set, and, <laughs> I mean, no and a very effective one <laughs> yes, uh, uh, yes. in in terms of the history. Well, they came up with a set of recommendations, which was really how to exit Iraq without too much egg on your face. And over that three month incubation period, the Bush administration, the junior Bush administration, decided not to do anything like what had been recommended by that bipartisan committee, mm. and took its own risk. <clears throat> and introduced the surge. Can I ask just from memory, I think this is gone actually, that the difference between what happened in Iraq and what people would like to happen in, in, in Afghanistan is that the rising against al-Qaeda, for example, came from the Sunnis and it came before the Americans sort of got into the big business of the surge. Oh, well before. So that's not going to happen in Afghanistan, is it? But added to which, they were on the side of the majority in Iraq. 
the, the United States and, and the British for that matter, the Shia Arabs had their moment of glory mm. and they still are enjoying it. And uh, talking about, which I think you were going to do, the, mm. the, the prospect of the Iraq election. Which is in January at the moment. Which is set for January and there was a bit of a panic that it wouldn't go ahead because they couldn't agree on the exact procedures for holding the election but they have agreed which is um and they've found a formula for kirkuk which uh, enables them Explain to agree kirkuk kirkuk having been a city <clears throat> in northwestern iraq which the uh, saddam hussein regime had quietly filled with arabs including shia arabs uh, in order to uh, ethnically cleanse the Kurds, change the demographics of the city ever since the invasion, if not before, <coughs> in 2003. It is a, a Kurdish city. Well, that's what they're claiming, but there was also Turkmen and Assyrians mm. and, and, and a nice old mix there. And oil. And <laughs> it sits on top of the principal oil supply that the Kurds want to tap into to cement their autonomy, their prospects in the north. So they're trying to reverse the demographics of Saddam in Kirkuk. They've succeeded to an extent and there was to be a census on exactly who lives in Kirkuk. And rather than have that census and have some sort of uh, deal based on it right now because it's so contentious mm. they've decided to fudge. postpone yes fudge i love fudge i thought I it was a idea. choice between the two censuses the, the one of 2004 and the one of 2009 and every if you took the 2009 one it obviously benefited the kurds um Yes, but I mean, the, the point being that we'll defer deciding all the issues that were supposed mm. to derive from mm. the census in terms of the future of Kirkuk. We'll, we'll just get on with the election and then come back to the Kirkuk. Mm. I mean, here we are sort of, oh, here was I bad-mouthing what's going on in, in Iraq and fudge and oil and all that sort of thing. Uh, what, how long? Six, coming up seven years after the war started? Wouldn't we like Afghanistan to be in the position where they were going to have those sort of elections uh, without actually having to fix the whole thing? Well, yes, indeed. But, uh, but, but the penalty in Iraq has been that the, the guys who are now in charge represent the majority. Democracy has a big message for the rest of the region. The other Sunni Arab regimes in all the other Arab states <coughs> are and remain pretty upset about what the coalition or the, the allies succeeded in doing in Iraq. And the, the default beneficiary is the Iranians. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's, it's understanding the nature of the success in Iraq. It has implications. A knock-on effect for the rest of the region. The rest of the region is getting nervous. And exactly. getting more and more <laughs> unstable. Yes, I mean, look at Yemeni, the Yemenis at the moment. The Yemen is in, uh, has got problems at the moment, hasn't it, with its sheer minority, which is, in fact, I think, the majority in the north. And it's in the process of becoming a failed state, mm. and uh, if it does, then it will also be a hangout for al-Qaeda. There are Shias in Afghanistan as well. In fact, they were massacred in the days of the Taliban, of the Taliban government. I mean, there's a, Af Afghanistan is a tremendous mix. The Taliban tend to come from the Pashtun. But you can't introduce a majority there like the Shias. No, you, you can't. No, no, no. Right. Now, Berlin. Last Monday... Um, the world focused its attention on Berlin. Well, they didn't in China, but the, in, in, on Berlin. 
20 years to the day since the wall fell, the city celebrated with music, fireworks and a symbolic tumbling of wall-sized dominoes designed by Berlin's school children. Politicians, past and present, attended Gorbachev, Medvedev and Valencia from the east, Sarkozy, Clinton and Brown from the west. Jamie Gordon was there for BFBS. As over 100,000 people gathered to watch the culmination of the celebrations, world leaders spoke in glowing terms of the bravery and sacrifice that finally led to the fall of the wall. President Obama believed there was no clearer rebuke of tyranny and no stronger affirmation of freedom in his surprise video address at the Brandenburg Gate. And other leaders, including Gordon Brown and Hillary Clinton, expressed their admiration for the people of Germany. Let me say, first of all, to the people of Berlin... The whole world is proud of you. You tore down the wall and you changed the world. Those of us gathered here tonight, leaders and citizens alike, we must pledge ourselves to work together to advance freedom beyond its current frontiers. Chancellor Angela Merkel grew up in the East and she knows more keenly than most the legacy of the 9th of November 1989. She said that 20 years on there was still work to be done, particularly with the East of the country lagging behind economically. But she was positive about the future. Ladies and gentlemen, it was together that we could remove the Iron Curtain. And I'm convinced that we will originate or derive strength from that for the 21st century. The speeches were not, in the main, written to score political points, and given the occasion, they may have seemed a little bland. Once the dominoes fell and the fireworks faded, some were left with the feeling of, what now for Germany? Certainly there is unhappiness in some quarters. In an interview with BFBS Radio last Monday, Heidi Brower, who learned her English by listening to us whilst living in East Berlin, clearly has an issue with some current members of the political setup. Because you know the communists are um, in the government now and uh, in the Berliner Senat, and I don't like them. Um, they are responsible for the wall and for uh, all this, the, the long years we suffered in the East. We lived like in a prison and we couldn't go out. Perhaps the price of democracy is having to accept other people's points of view. And whilst nobody would suggest there could ever be a second Berlin Wall, there are some in Berlin, who I spoke to, that given the choice would prefer some things the way they were before 1989. Jamie Gordon, reporting for Citrep. Um, I was thinking, John Dickey, that was only Chancellor Merkel. I mean, she was born in Hamburg, but she was brought up in East Germany. Mm-hmm. She, and, and, um, she was the only one with those speeches that had any credibility. The rest sounded as if they were coming from some really bad uh, script-writing studio in the back streets of Hollywood. Yes, it did sound a bit like uh, rather old uh, DVDs had been dredged up to be played out. Uh, but it's a difficult situation to really put over. I mean, it's just let them have the moment of euphoria and, and that's it. You don't really need the speeches. Yeah. I wonder um, if we've... You remember Peter Spiegel saying how White House, um, Eric, views the Europeans. Um, these cry freedom speeches are, are quite meaningless, aren't they, uh, in, in NATO? Well, in some ways, but um, you know, the... the, the uh, there is still a problem in the east, actually. I would say from Russia, and uh, you know, and in fact, uh, 
yes, it is. There's, there's a certain amount of of nostalgia here. It's interesting that the that the East Germans do get nostalgic, but the trouble is, it's a whole package. You know, yes, things might have been better in some ways in Eastern Germany, but you have the Stasi listening to you all the time. Yeah, I was thinking far more that, for example, um, Rosie's Chancellor Merkel. It was a, it was a really good speech. I mean, the rest was rubbish, quite frankly. Um, but. It's not going to send more troops to Germany, uh, to Afghanistan, is it? I mean, she was saying that we understand it's the people that can actually pull down a wall. Um, but in Afghanistan, it's actually, well, according to reasons, Obama, you've got to send troops to help them. I, I think the Europeans do have a problem with their own history. Mm-hmm. The, the, now that Europe, the, the wall is down and Europe has expanded in every sense, in the European Union, uh, NATO... Uh, and the barriers no longer exist, the the Western Europeans have some contenders for the story. What was the victory uh, in 1945, and what did the the Soviet Union constitute? And the Soviet Union had its value for the creation of the original NATO and for the the effectiveness Mm. of NATO. The, the East Europeans have a completely different story of history. So, hence the reason why the speeches are going to be bland, because it's, there's no agreement on what they're celebrating. Right. Um, John, uh, the, the, the greater truth is that, is, is that after the speeches, after the Lord Mayor's show, uh, you get back to business. And if I were Chancellor Merkel... I'd say Opal is a bigger story than the wall today because that directly affects the economy. It does. Uh, 26,000 Germans employed by Opel and the decision of GM Motors to uh, abandon its, its deal with the Germans despite the very attractive subsidy that Bundeskanzler Merkel was prepared to put into it, they think can restructure. And it's that restructuring that is going to hit Opel in Germany and probably hit Vauxhall in this country. Right. Can we leap, make a big leap to... Um uh, to the seas off the Koreas. Uh, Eric, mm-hmm. uh, your lot, the Navy, yes. uh, having a go at each other. South Korean warship exchanged fire with a North Korean naval vessel. No casualties other than diplomatic relations. Or are these sabers that really shouldn't be rattled? Well, it's still a very uneasy relationship along the demilitarized zone that's been the boundary ever since the end of the end of the Korean War. I mean, guns point at each other. This is a very, very tense border indeed. Of course, it and it runs uh, theoretically out to sea, and 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 in those areas, the actual demarcation sometimes is a matter of dispute. In fact, for most of South Korea, it's the Coast Guard that looks after offshore waters, but in the vicinity of the DMZ, it is the Navy, and that this is exactly the reason why that the DP. Okay, the North Koreans try a little bit of pushing here and there, and the South Koreans repel them. John, uh, Stephen Bosworth, uh, President Obama's senior representative, he's off to, to North Korea. That's, that's important, isn't it? They want to talk directly. Well, this is one of the reasons, I think, for the creation of the incident, that they want to show that they cannot be ignored at a time when President Obama is making this grand tour of Asia. They want to say, you can't forget us, and that's why Bosworth's going there. And it is possible that uh, if Bosworth can be as persuasive as he sometimes been in the past, you yeah. might get back to the table. But the Chinese are actually saying to uh, the Americans, look, try and get direct negotiation with North Korea. That's the only thing they, they really want. That's, they want. They want the organ grinder. They, they, they say that they're only uh, in, interested in, in getting results, and the only way to get results is by going to the top level. And they can point to other examples whereby Obama has taken a direct interest in the Middle East. He's seen Netanyahu, this really 
Prime Minister, Sin Mahmoud Abbas, the uh, Palestinian leader, why can't he do the same with the Koreas? Yeah. And the very fact the Americans are negotiating with them is a victory in itself. It shows what an important country the Democratic People's Republic of Korea is. Yeah. Rosie, uh, Shaman Sheikh, the African uh, conference there, did you notice that the Chinese turned up, uh, the, the Chinese uh, Premier, uh, Wen Jiaobo, turned up? Why? What was he doing there? That was all about Africa. I think it's interesting that the Chinese are finally accepting that having got, this is going to sound negative, but their tentacles all over the mm -hmm. continent. I mean, it, they're in the business of Africa, having worked away quietly to get loads and loads of contracts. And in the contracts, there's usually um, a, an involvement of Chinese labor as opposed to local labor. And they're very good at building roads um, for client states, but uh, not at uh, fueling indigenous uh, democracy. Now, all they of this... Organized it. This happened three years ago. I mean, Hu Jintao had it in Beijing, and all the Africans are there. This time in Sharm el-Sheikh, there were 52 African leaders. You can't even get that to the Commonwealth now. And they are there with backing balls. I mean... Uh, well, the Chinese handed out Last, billion, last, last week, a Democratic Republic of the Congo, and three billion pounds uh, a deal by the Chinese there to get copper and cobalt in return for building roads, bridges... Railways? Uh, uh, History railways. repeating itself. Uh, well, History. I mean, they learned a lesson in the Tanzam affair. In the Tanzam, between Zambia and Tanzania, uh, the Chinese workers kept themselves apart from the Africans, looked down on the Africans, uh, and that set up all sorts of uh, frictions. Now, they're much cleverer in, in, in working in Africa. I mean, in Guinea, where um, they put in uh, three billion, the West started cutting off ties because of the massacre of 150 uh, opposition leaders in in Guinea, but the Chinese China doesn't care about that. China doesn't care. They say we're not a new colony. We're, we're not interested in, in the in domestic affairs. In return, when at the UN the question of human rights in China comes up, they've got all the African votes. John, quickly tell me. Um, visit this week to London, the separate presidents. Anything coming out of it that's worthwhile? Very interesting. Two very interesting aspects of that visit of 45 minutes at Downing Street. President Christophius uh, reaffirmed uh, his desire to accept the offer of uh, Decalia, one of the two sovereign bases in Cyprus, returning to uh, Cypriot uh, control, provided that there is ultimately uh, a settlement. Of course, there are optimists in Cyprus who might think this is the first step. Decalia first, and next Akrotiri. But of course, the listening post up in the Tridus would be the, the main problem there. But it's part of the Cypriot goal of getting uh, a demilitarized Cyprus, get rid of the Turkish troops of Ukraine and therefore that means getting rid of the British. Wonderful yep. to have a bargaining chip. The, the other thing is that uh, Christophius mentioned uh, the uh, alarm at uh, an event that took place in the north at the weekend. Uh, the, the Brits, many of them, the ancient Brits, who have taken up residence there. You mean the senior citizens, in, in some cases with uh, Greek separate property, they held a ceremony and put up a monument to all the, the, the Brits that were killed during Eoka between 1955 and 59, and this didn't go down at all well. <laughs> right. Uh, we're slightly late. 
It's, uh, it's just after half past the hour. Uh, you're listening to SITREP from BFBS with me, Christopher Lee. If you've missed a bit or want to listen again, just go to bfbs.com forward slash SITREP and listen again or podcast. Do it whenever you like. Now, we come to this bit we call SITREP Overheard, the part of the programme where we think aloud about some of the issues, not always obvious from this week's news, but some of the points that may have more influence on what the services do and where they do it, and in the long run, when they do it. Um, this week, we take our cue from the Berlin Wall celebration. Still with me, the former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail, John Dickey, from Salford University, Professor Eric Grove, and from City University here in London, Dr. Rosemary Hollis. Um, let's go back to the Berlin Wall. Um, I wonder if it meant a great deal to us all uh, this week, John. I think it did. Um, it was so unexpected at the time, and in some cases was undesired at the time. Both the French president of that period, um, Mitterrand, and uh, Prime Minister Thatcher here were against reunification at that time. In fact, they sent a message um, to Gorbachev saying, hold back the tide if you can. And it was Gorbachev in his wisdom who said, the tide is, is gone so far, we can't hold it back. Mm. Um, I think listening to that, uh, in from um, Belfast is Chris Ryder. Chris, it's struck me that a lot of the deployments of British forces during the past, I know, 100 years, I suppose, always have been about divided people. And if we take Ireland, um, is it an exaggeration? Does it feel like a place, the island of Ireland, in fact, that's been divided for most of its recorded history? Well, it has because you have, uh, you could call it the, 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 the macro divide of the island. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that the Northerners didn't want any part of Home Rule, uh, that gave rise to the troubles in the 1920s. Uh, the solution then was to divide the island, and now today um, uh, the, the island remains divided, but uh, within Northern Ireland there are all sorts of micro-divisions. I mean, for instance, there were 26 Berlin-type barricades in Belfast at the time of the ceasefires in 1994. There are now 80. So, uh, so did you uh, say 80, 80? Eight zero. Eight zero. Uh, so there, the, the degree of segregation between the two communities here uh, is increasing rather than decreasing. Now tell me why that is. Because um, the divisions, the sectarian and the political divisions, remain just as strong as ever. While there is a certain degree of normality and a certain degree of, of, of fragile peace and fragile political consensus, um, there, there haven't been the big political breakthroughs. Um, the, the communities remain divided. There is no appetite for integration. For example, only 5% of children attend integrated schools, uh, and there are huge amounts of money spent on, on duplicated facilities on either side of these so-called peace lines, and people are still reluctant to sell farms to someone from the opposite religion. So the rigid sectarian geography remains, and some places it's visible, like these lines in Belfast where people just don't trust the other community and want to be separated from them. In the country areas, it's, it's not just visible, but it's every bit as rigid. So there's, 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 a, there's a very deep and lasting division in Northern Ireland, uh, and there's a, an unwillingness, indeed, on the part of the uh, Sinn Féin and DUP administration to tackle it. There's a future strategy document which has been prepared, uh, but neither party will face up to it, and they won't put in place measures to try and, and develop uh, integration. Would you, ex uh, would you explain to people who probably don't know those barriers, the 80 barriers you talked about, would you describe one? What's yeah, it made uh, of? The, 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 their origins lie in 1969 when the army came in 
and they put up crude barricades of uh, corrugated iron and barbed wire. But uh, now, of course, they, they are built of brick. They, they've got railings they, they, to make them look less intrusive. They, they use varied patterns on the bricks and the stone, the railings that try to paint them to look in with the communities. But the fact remains that they're never as ugly as the Berlin Wall, but the fact remains that they are equally physical barriers and um, the, the people on both sides won't consider having them taken down. And as I say, there's been an increase of them. People want more and more of them uh, because that's the only way they feel secure. That's the only way they feel that, 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 that they can live in close proximity to people of the opposite religion, opposite political beliefs. And it's a scar that runs right across Belfast. What does this do to a nation? Well, um, it makes it harder and harder for people to come together. Um, because, uh, you know, it, it, for example, on each side of these walls, people frequent different shops. Um, there, there is no shared community. Uh, Belfast City Centre remains a sort of shared area, uh, like, a no, uh, like a neutral zone, if you like. But in the suburbs, uh, people from the Schenkel Road do not go to the falls and vice versa. And um, that means that in public service terms, there are, there are all sorts of, of duplication of facilities, doctor's practices, benefits offices, all sorts of services have to be delivered in such a way that that the communities feel comfortable with, with them uh, being for their own exclusive use. Chris Ryder, thank you very much indeed. Um, where I've is taken he? two groups of Israelis and Palestinians to Belfast. You've taken two groups? Yes. Uh, in two successive summers to look at the segregation and to hear about the quote-unquote peace walls. And of course the Israelis and Palestinians who are uh, have a barrier going up between them that is not yet complete but is designed to separate them as much as possible and they're still in hot conflict uh, can't believe that these barriers all over Belfast are called peace walls who would want the introduction of these walls there's a lot of graffiti and a lot of painting um, and symbols but we were also learning of course in the sectarianism don't think that you've got a peace deal that's the end of the conflict it lives and breathes in the communities in the united kingdom in the united kingdom yes and uh, they so all this discussion the israelis think with their barrier that it keeps out the suicide bombers what most people don't know about the barrier that the israelis have built along, mostly along what was the Green Line, but dipping deep into... How long is it, do you know? Uh, I don't, I can't tell you. Uh, it's many, many kilometres, but, um, and it follows a tortuous route to incorporate the main settlement blocks on the Israeli side of the barrier. But what most people don't realise is the, the, the mechanisms that have been introduced to the east of that barrier in the heart of the West Bank to control the populations. So there's one road system for the Jewish settlers and another road system for the Palestinians. The Jewish settlements sit on top of the main water sources and if you're a Palestinian you have to have a permit to tap into those water sources. The, you have to have a permit to go from town to town until this last summer and those permits will be reintroduced and the main checkpoints reintroduced if the Palestinians are disruptive. 
almost every night there's a raid by the Israeli army into downtown Palestinian cities. This is all people what, to control. disrupt the possibility of bombers, uh, rockets firing, or whatever. Or no, what? no, no. They're going after wanted people because they're okay. trying to expunge the 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 Islamist group Hamas from the West Bank. So they've handed over some security duties to the Palestinians, and the Israelis take care of the the deadliest themselves. Now th this is. It, it's too complicated for people on the outside to know, well, okay, the barrier increases security on both sides, and uh, they, they don't understand how it affects the daily lives of the communities. And I do know that um, some British soldiers were trying to explain to a, a group of well-meaning international donor community people how to who wanted to introduce more security into the old city of Jerusalem the British soldiers were saying the security your security Israeli security Palestinian security is in the people the more physical barriers you introduce the more high-tech gizmos to mm -hmm. check people's mm -hmm. uh, what they've got on their persons the the more you're reliant on something that is not about real community relations mm. Eric, it, it, I mean, historically, this is, uh, this is not uncommon, but it is also true that I wouldn't mind betting that uh, of all the people in the United Kingdom listening to this broadcast, other than obviously in the province of Northern Ireland, um, people all over the world would not realise that uh, Northern Ireland uh, was as complex and as sad as it is. It is. It's, it's, it's a terrible situation. I, I must admit, actually, when, a year or two ago, when I went over from, from Fleetwood to Ireland uh, with my wife, and we drove through Northern Ireland, we were actually pleased to cross the border. Because when you go through these places with these terribly high walls, it gives you a very oppressive feel. Mm. And suddenly, although there isn't a barrier now, there, oddly enough, I mean, the one place there isn't a, isn't a wall is actually on, this, on the Republic-UK uh, 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 um, border. Then suddenly it's a totally different atmosphere. It is a tragedy how, over the last 100 years, and in the last 150 years, I suppose, sectarian tensions have been encouraged by both sides to create two totally mm. different nationalities who hate each other's guts fundamentally. And that's a what, terrible tragedy. John, what worries me is having seen it in Cyprus over the last 30 or 40 years, I've gone over to the north and, and talked to young women, young men, who've never spoken uh, to a Greek Cypriot. And equally, when I'm in the south and, uh, and talking to friends there, I say to their children, have you ever talked to uh, a Turk? And no, they haven't. So that the younger generation inherit all the prejudices of their parents. And the line that has been there since 1974... The Green Line. The Green Line is stuck in the, in the minds of even the youngest. And fear is important, too. Mm -hmm. Each side fears each mm -hmm. other. They're scared of the other side. Mm -hmm. The Unionists in the North are scared of being submerged in an alien republic. In in Cyprus, you know, the, the Turkish conquest and the ejection of, of, mm. of, of Greek Cypriots. There's a lot of fear in this too. And where you get fear, you do tend to get hatred. It's a, it's yeah, a sort of natural uh, response. Hang on a minute, because there's also a problem here. When you're building up community solidarity, when you're um, defending an identity, including national identities, you need heroes. And most of those heroes, if you dig into the history come in relation to war and conflict 
And uh, what I saw also and was hearing about in Northern Ireland is the rites of passage of the young men growing up, the collecting of the wood for the bonfires, the guarding of the bonfires overnight so that other neighbourhoods would not steal it, uh, the tinder or um, set fire to it. Now, uh, the marches... Uh, the actually the, the apprentice boy marches yeah. uh, yes. all the orange marches yes. but um, and the in your face going through neighbourhoods now the the idea is there's lots of these well-meaning community workers who are trying to break down these psychological and physical barriers uh, but what they run up against is how do you give the the young men a sense of thrill and uh, substitute for the kind of tribalism that previously gave them a high as they were growing up, and they can only come up with football. Mm. Rosie, it's, 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 it's also true, coming back to your uh, specialised area in the Middle East, if I think of the word or, or the phrase Litani River, mm. I, again, I think of a barrier. And, you know, I don't think of a, a wonderful river, which is not a particularly wonderful river at all, but this is the whole idea that it is yet again a barrier. And it's a mental barrier as well. Well, actually, I mean, you're, you're mentioning a river in southern Lebanon, yes. which became the dividing line between where Israel thought it could create a security zone. Um, and it was assumed by the Arabs that they were in the... They were, it was the Litani River, because then you could also tap into the water resources. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, the, the economic geography of the Middle East and the demography, I mean, these disputes mm -hmm. between... Israelis and Palestinians are going to pale into insignificance over time uh, because the whole region is facing a looming crisis. Mm. The demography, the water and the oil, there is no equality mm. and it's going to be a zero-sum game. Mm. And the Israeli-Palestinian one on the West Bank um, is just a microcosm. Mm. John, I was thinking that, that, that again that we're talking almost historically or recent history anyway, but uh, barriers, walls are still being built, aren't they? Indeed, I mean, there's one that's going up as we talk between Burma and Bangladesh. I mean, the, the Burmese uh, are just uh, putting an enormous uh, wall across that border, which has run for about 200 miles, uh, to stop uh, the Muslims going out to Bangladesh. Uh, something like 200,000 already gone, but the, the Burmese, the Myanmar military junta, uh, just does not like Muslims in the country. Right. Um, let's go back to the what sparked all this. Let's go back to Berlin. I'm just showing you don't have to be in the middle of a conflict to have divided cities. Terry Brewer, who has lived in Berlin since he was part of the British military mission, I think, and now famously runs his Berlin tours business, uh, is on the line. Um, Terry, whereabouts are you at the moment? I'm sitting in the Circus Hostel in uh, Rosenthalerplatz in Prenzlauer Berg, the, the up-and-coming swanky bit of lively Berlin for young people, and not so young people like me. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I was thinking about the whole thing as I watched the um, the, the, the celebrations, um, and it's more or less what we've been talking about here. In some ways, all cities divide culturally and economically anyway. I mean, the difference is that you can move between the two the two sides, but that's true, isn't it? Well, that's very much the case. As uh, I was saying to someone recently. Uh, when they were mentioning the differences between East and West Berlin and people don't go backwards and forwards, I pointed out that in London people who live in Hendon don't go down to uh, Croydon and people who live in East Ham don't find themselves on the way to Harrow. Uh, 
But they might meet up, let's say, in Oxford Circus to do business or to, to work, and then they have the option of going back, and that's the difference, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the freedom to move between one and the other, um, although there are increasingly sort of ethnic reasons and religious reasons why this, why this may not be so. You don't necessarily have to build a brick wall. Yeah, that's very much the case, sadly, in many, in many societies, such as sadly we, we have at home in Northern Ireland, which has been very, a very sad thing for me personally. And, um, but uh, the, the same in Jerusalem, as, as you know, and uh, similarly in Cyprus. Mm. The, one of the things that I, I got from the newsreels and listening to people talk, and, and that was on, on Monday particularly, is the popular image of one part of Berlin being bad and one being good. I don't think it's that all, all that simple, because I've often wondered whether East Berliners between 1961 and 1989 might have actually been, I don't, I don't mean nicer people, but I think I probably mean nicer people than, than the West Berliners. That's, you take the words out of my mouth. It, from my experiences, uh, the, the East Berliners, I, I found to be far more open and, and far more warm in general. But I think that was because they were living such straightened existence under the Honecker and Ulbricht regimes that they uh, all help each other so very much. And, of course, one never knew who was sitting next to you in the bar was a Stasi man or not, but they all seem to be much more friendly than... Then the West Berliners tend to be more reserved, like British people tend to be reserved, or certainly reserved when I was younger. Is that a complication of freedom? Possibly. There's a big, big argument here in Berlin at the moment that, that the a lot of the Easterners are just um, um, bewildered by the the choices they've got in everything. But previously they had no choice, and they they put up with a, with a bad job or, or made do with what they did have. Mm. Terry, thank you very much. And listen. Um, <coughs> Am I right? BrewersBerlinTours.com? Yes, yeah. That'll find you, won't it? That'll find us, yeah. Yes, yes. And if you want to continue this conversation, I bet he will. Okay, Terry Brewer, thank you very much indeed. Um, I tell you, John, uh, this devolution, freedom, we were talking about, you know, the complications of freedom. Devolution in Scotland has produced its own complications, hasn't it? I get hear more anti-Scottish articles in newspapers than, than before devolution. What, what's going on there? I think it's just jealousy of the Sassanachs, personally. But I might be slightly biased, but no, I think... I mean, you're down here doing missionary work, aren't well, you? Well, it's a different <laughs> job. I mean, uh, we've, we've sent people before, like dear old Macmillan and uh, Ian MacLeod and all these three great Gordon missionaries. Gordon Brown. Gordon <laughs> in a sense, the son of the manse. Um, but, uh, no, I think devolution has worked remarkably well uh, under a very, a very good leader. Um, and um, if they had, you know, more say, I think you'd have even more benefits. For example, there's, uh, there's no uh, tuition fees for your university students in Scotland. I mean, uh, health care is much better. The old age pension has got a better deal in Scotland. Thank you, Minister. Yes, yes. Um, I, th- I, th- I think there's a, there's a trade-off yes. here, because if we're looking at these uh, conflict divides, uh, the more you fragment a society, the more it becomes fragmented. Mm-hmm. And there, there comes a level at which you don't want it to be that fragmented. I also think it's conceivable with the Western Europeans vis-a-vis the East. Uh, I certainly see it with Israelis vis-a-vis Palestinians. The, the, there is a guilt. I mean, if you're better off, um, you don't know to what extent you're only better off because the other guys aren't. And uh, you become a bit defensive and, and, and therefore prickly. Mm. Um, as opposed to sharing and we're all in this together because you've almost got a guilty secret. And Do you think there's really some guilty secret about the 
Palestinians? They certainly I think have. a lot of them <laughs> do. Hunt, have, I haven't found a great number. No, I, I think a lot of them do, so they don't want to think about it if they possibly can uh, avoid thinking about it. And you do, it's only the um, sort of <clears throat> ideological settlers that spend any time, apart from the army in the West Bank, other Israelis really don't want to go there and don't want to think about it. And they, they do actually wish that Obama would come in and sort it and take the flak so that they don't have to. But you can't really compare England and Scotland to Israel and Palestine. I mean, I mean well, Scotland... Well, I don't think we were doing that. But there was a tendency, but actually, in a way, I mean, I think devolution may well have worked as indeed many of its non-SNP supporters mm. hoped it would. Mm. I, I, I've got the impression of late that the Scots are beginning to say, right, this devolution's fine and that's enough. That we don't necessarily want to go for independence. This is fine. This is exactly the kind of recognition of our national well, I don't status. I think Alex Salmond would go along with Alex Salmond wouldn't, but I'm not sure Alex Salmond... He's a very bright guy. Yes, he is, but I'm not sure that Alex Salmond would, would in fact necessarily reflect the views of the, of the majority not, of the, of the Scottish electorate. I, I mentioned Beirut earlier. I... The, one of the reasons why I was there last week was that there was an international conference bringing people from all over the world who were looking at the role of higher education in generating and fostering a culture of dialogue and understanding across cultures. And we did get into a debate of whether <clears throat> a classroom full of Welsh, English and Scots requires a, a, a modicum, a little element of the same exercise the same facilitation that a classroom of Protestant and Catholics from Northern Ireland needs, or at a further extreme, a classroom full of Israelis and Palestinians needs. Do how how do you mediate across these divides? But there's no great animosity between the Welsh and the Scots or the Welsh and the English. It's, it's only in the rugger field that that happens. Exactly. No, I mean, I mean, I think, I, I think, false I think basically, basically, you don't have the argument over who owns what. If, for example, there was a mixed population of Scots and English, say between the Tweed and the Ribble, and one side was carrying out some kind of terrorist activity in order to try to bring the thing onto the agenda, then I think you would have the kinds That's of things that would happen fashion. in the Middle East. Well, you sold fashion as far as far back as well, actually, as, as as well, no, actually, well, it was it was it, it was up for grabs until the 12th century. Yeah. But there's well, no it animosity between nationalities at all. I mean, you, not you to that same extent. They work together. There is conflict. Israelis and the Palestinians don't work. There is really. conflict. There is a certain amount of. Di- not of the citizens of the same country. Can I ask just a quick question? I mean, it's a very personal question here. Um, I still believe there is a divide between Northerners and Southerners Absolutely. in the United Kingdom. Now, three of you. Um, and I won't declare, but three of you um, have a sort of further north than the Thames sort of backgrounds, don't you? Absolutely. Do you feel it? Yes. And what do you a, feel? And there is a difference between. I mean, the you Northern feel it between the difference between the Danes and the North, or the Danes or, or, and the North within the North of England. Yes. I mean, I mean, basically, I would I would regard England as being divided into Anglo-Scandinavian England in the North and Anglo-Saxon England in the South. And Anglo-Scandinavian in the North, and then that is divided as well. Yes, I mean, I mean, Lancashire and North, Yorkshire? Lancashire, Lancashire and Yorkshire. I mean, uh, the Lancashire people, the Scandinavian part is distinctly Norse. You can tell it higher, as they say to each other, Norwegian. East of the Pennines, it's Aeop, My kids Danish. Yes, but it also is a very common Lancashire term. In fact, when we have Norwegian visitors, they, they are surprised. In fact, college. they are surprised at the number of uh, at the number of sort of Norwegian type words that are used. So, about. but is there, it is a, is it a divide? It's 
It's a cultural distinction, but the two parts have lived together for so long, they both regard themselves as being English. It doesn't give them a different sense of nationality. It gives them a different sense of culture. Northerners feel that Southerners are a rather arrogant view And you work in the North. I work well. in the North, yes, although yes. I'm half and half myself. My father was Southern and my, uh, and my mother Northern. Yeah, he's claiming Southern But I always felt more at home in the North, which is why I work at the University of Salford. That was a deliberate decision to go back to my roots. And before and I that, you were at Hull. In Hull. Which was, slightly, which was odd That's because Yorkshire, Yorkshire is not the same. Go on, admit if if I'm abroad and meet somebody with a Scottish accent, I'm interested to know where he comes from. Mm. But if I'm uh, in the bar with an Englishman, I don't suddenly say, um, "Are you from Northamptonshire or wherever?" But it's that sort of familiarity between Scots, which, which is manifested particularly when they're outside their own. But country. there is a distinction. I mean, people actually do come up to people of Scots, as particularly and say, "You know, you Scots now." Uh, and they're getting it more and more, if I need to believe the papers. What I'm, I don't want to go down no. on the record as having suggested that the, the kind of animosities that exist between Israelis and Palestinians also exist between the English and the Scottish. However, I think if you look at what builds pride in your heritage, in your culture, in your history, in your identity, you can see that it's not totally disconnected from what gets completely out of hand when people are scrapping over the same piece of territory. No, I think it's totally different. There's no discrimination, for example, between English and, uh, and Welsh or, or Welsh and Scots as there is between Israelis no. and Palestinians. Yeah. I've let this go on like this, although I do have to add that when I go back to my, um, uh, my, well, my parents' home, they still ask me, if, uh, or they still tell me that I've had, well, I've had my tea before, um, before, I, before I cross the threshold. I've let this go on. I've, I'll let this go on simply because I wanted to, wanted to show that the whole Berlin Wall thing and the, the mixture of societies, it doesn't start with concrete and reinforced concrete, does it? It starts somewhere else and it continues somewhere else. And it's the sort of animosities we heard from Chris Ryder. Mm -hmm. Today there are 80 physical steel know, and that's, brick that's barriers really scary. That's really in scary. the United Kingdom. I think, I think what made the Berlin Wall different was because it did divide artificially. It wasn't a sort of division between Bavaria and the North. It was a sort of an artificial divide across something that was basically the same. No. But it created its own cultural distinctions. Yeah, pipe down a minute, Eric, because I want to get this in before we finish. <laughs> um, yesterday... I was in Trafalgar Square for the uh, for the remembrance, mm -hmm. uh, the Armistice Day service, right? And scattered around um, Trafalgar Square were very, very smart soldiers with trays and poppies. In Trafalgar Square, where was the navy, Eric? Well, the poppy covers the navy as well, but it's, I agree. Yes, there but should it's have been just some, soldiers. There should have been no some people in dark blue suits there. There as should well. have been some ratings. Now, That's why Mr. not? Trick. I have no idea. Now, it's your been... knowledge of navy PR would lead you to suggest that somebody's missed a trick here. Well, perhaps so. Yes, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, but I have to say that the new first sea laws of physicist, you ought to know about. Well, these well I must admit, I, I think the navy could do a lot better in its public relations. I felt that. I felt that very strongly. Well, the Air Force too, exactly. Yes. But I think that... No, well, I what's think the Air Force doing in Trafalgar Square? No, I mean, what I mean is... It there is Trafalgar, Trafalgar Square. Square. I know, exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. And there's not and a trail And this reinforces, there was the, one this reinforces the current tendency to call all servicemen soldiers. It is quite serious. Mm. The Navy needs to sort its PR out. I wish they would. What, do they, what would they have to do, Eric? I think they've got to, to bring themselves before the public's attention in a positive way as much as they uh, as much as they can they should take every opportunity of bringing the royal navy to the attention of the british public it was the same with the remember service in, in 
Westminster Abbey. I mean, uh, the whole three services were presented, represented, but the, the Navy was very thin on the ground compared with the Army. I mean, in part, it's because the Navy is very stretched as far as mm. having people on active service and on, and on various kinds of operations. Uh, they could do up sea cadets. They well, could dig up uh, sort of uh, R&Rs, ratings. Very true, order. very true. I mean, well, I think this is something addre- I think there's something that ought to be addressed to the to the director of corporate communications, Navy, or, or is that what they call it. it? Is. Well, yeah, that's I mean, the problem, in, isn't in, it? In Why don't past. you just write to the first sea lord? Well, I, uh, next time I see him, I'll have a chat. Mark Stanhope. Mark Stanhope, yes. Yes, very or, nice. Or man. Mr. No, sorry, Admiral. Admiral. Admiral, Admiral Stanhope. So, Mark Stanhope. Um, <laughs> the whole idea, though, John, of military PR at the moment is not quite right, is it? The public's on its side, but it's not quite right. It's in a dreadful state throughout the globe. I mean, uh, you probably read as I did that there's a communication centre in Kabul with 120 of a staff, and yet they cannot get the message across. Whereas they don't have that problem in uh, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, do they? You're drawing me back in there, and I'm, I'm still trying to reflect on what went wrong just now. Uh, but I, I think both Eric and John are a little bit complacent that they don't have the terrible problems that other nasty people do. <laughs> the do nasty we're, problem we're, for us, I'm afraid, is the, the time. Uh, that's it for this week. My thanks to Eric Rivers, me Hollis, and John Dickey. John is here on next week, Sit Rep, Thursday, 4 o'clock UK time. If you can, listen again and podcast anytime you like at bfbs.com forward slash sit rep. But for me now, Christopher Lee, I'm going. Bye bye. And guess what? Mary's in the hut. Mm.